The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Who is this God that I should let your people go? Aaron, cast down my staff before Pharaoh, that he may see the power of God. In this you shall know that the Lord is God. Nothing of his will harm you, my son. The power of your god is a cheap magician's trick. Janus. swallows up the others. We've heard the cynical statements before. Hollywood has no original ideas. It's not hard to bring up so many examples of an original movie that was already pretty good, but Hollywood just had to go and add a bunch of visual effects and the hottest actors to tell the same story again. The Ten Commandments was a movie that was released in 1923 and directed by Cecil B. DeMille. It was an epic movie, costing an estimated $1.2 to $1.8 million to produce and earning about $4.2 million at the box office. If those numbers sound a little weird to you, that's because I'm not talking about the Charlton Heston Yul Brynner epic. That Cecil B. DeMille movie came out 33 years later in 1956. Yes, the Ten Commandments movie that we all quote from, that we all know because they play it on TV every year, was a remake. On this episode of Arts Review and Commentary, I'm going to give my two cents on the world of remakes, reimaginings, and reboots in popular entertainment. Also, I'm going to give my review and commentary on my new favorite show on TV, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This is Ark. <laughs> God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair job? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! That's not even a word! Game over, man. Game over. I'll be back. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Welcome once again to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Latiri, and I want to give a great big thanks to all of you who have liked the show on Facebook. To pass 100 likes in less than a month is something that I wasn't expecting so soon, but I don't want to get complacent. I want to be able to share this show with everyone, but I need your help to do so. What can you do? 
The easiest way is to spread the word. If you have friends who are into podcasts, who are into movies, who are into TV, let them know about the show, either by word of mouth or on Facebook. Also, subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a five-star rating. By doing so, the folks at the great machine of Apple will take notice and it'll show up on their suggested podcasts. It may or may not snowball into something bigger from there, but we won't know until we try. I'll keep on doing the show, and stay on the watch for artsreviewandcommentary.com, where not only episodes of the show will be archived, but my movie reviews and essays from years past will also be available to read. You are Michael Bolton? Yeah. Are you any relation to the pop singer? No, it's it's just a coincidence. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I love his music. I do. I'm a Michael Bolton fan. Me too. For my money, I don't know if it gets any better than when he sings When a Man Loves a Woman. In 2009, I had the fortune of being the music director and a writer of a production of Hexagon, a political sketch comedy group that has put on an original variety show every year to raise money for one charity or another. There was a sketch I had written for the tech show that referenced Michael Bolton ruining his voice, singing When one of the older gentlemen in the crew asked me, Who's Michael Bolton? Didn't Percy Sledge sing that? I was floored. It was 2009. How could anyone not know who Michael Bolton was? I mean, you didn't have to like his music, but the guys had a lot of exposure. It occurred to me that this gentleman must have kept himself isolated from the outside world, either intentionally or by accident, but it also got me thinking. I remember hearing the cover versions of many songs first before I even knew there were original versions. I heard Hall & Oates sing You've Lost That Love and Feelin' before I heard The Righteous Brothers, for example. You see... What is a cover, if not a remake? Do these artists who cover music have no original ideas? Or is it that they want to add their own flair or mark on a song they happen to like? As with music, movies and television producers have their reasons for going back to the past for something that has proven to be satisfying or has the potential to do so. The theater world has been doing that for centuries and for the same reasons. One reason is to further artistic expression by injecting novelty, whether it's a new actor, a new setting, or a new time period. But perhaps the biggest reason that covers and adaptations and remakes exist is obviously the most cynical one. Money. Only a naive idealist would ever truthfully say that the best art only exists for art's sake. That's not to say that art can't exist in a vacuum. It absolutely can. But what good is it when it does? The art means little without an audience. Except to the artist. And therein lies the root of it all. A sense of ego. Most artists seek constant validation. And these days, the litmus test of how successful artists are is how much money they're making. Money translates into exposure and vice versa. Now, keep in mind, this is not necessarily a bad thing. 
In Hollywood, the studios, driven by their profit margins, invest millions of dollars into focus groups, polls, ratings aggregates, and data mining to figure out what the audience wants. And if the audience wants junk, then the audience gets junk. It's why McDonald's and Michael Bay are so successful worldwide. But back to the first reason I gave why remakes exist. To inject novelty. Straight-up remakes are the easiest way to redo entertainment. You got the story, you just use a different cast. Sometimes remakes can be quite successful. Take Ocean's Eleven or Hawaii Five-O, for example. But sometimes the remake won't find an audience. Take Red Dawn or Total Recall, for example. So, why did Ocean's Eleven succeed when Red Dawn didn't? I can think of one reason. Enough time had passed between the original version and remake for a new audience to be receptive to the same story. Red Dawn has become a cult classic of the 80s. Remember this? Avenge me! Avenge me! A story where the U.S. gets invaded by Asian communists may have played well in the heyday of the Reagan administration, but even then it was silly. Today in the 21st century, no, the premise doesn't work at all. But a casino heist? That's a premise that works well no matter what decade you're in, and Ocean's Eleven did it better than the original. The original Rat Pack's Ocean's Eleven isn't really regarded as a good movie, except to Rat Pack fans. But George Clooney and company did such a fun job with their version that it spawned two more sequels with a more or less consistent quality. Ocean's 13 being the more and Ocean's 12 being the less. So, those are some examples of remakes, and they can be hit or miss. But what do you do when you want to retell an original story, but in a different way? That's where you get to the reimagining, also known as the what-if type of story. West Side Story is the what if Romeo and Juliet took place between street gangs. The Magnificent Seven is what if Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai was a western. Even Kurosawa's Throne of Blood was a reimagining of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Setting a familiar story in a different or unfamiliar time or space can lead to new revelations about what makes a story good, how certain thematic constants exist outside of time or space. Sometimes, changing the way something is told can even reveal insights that the original version couldn't convey, like how Fifty Shades of Grey reimagined Twilight as an overtly erotic story. Or, <clears throat> you know... So I've heard. How do you know all this? I know because I must know. It is my purpose. It is the reason I'm here. A musical example is the song Mad World. Here's the original, sung by Tears for Fears. That pop tune of anger and angst was reimagined by Gary Jules and Michael Andrews as a quieter, melancholy tune. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I find it 
was featured in the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Donnie Darko and proved so versatile that was also featured in the commercial to the video game Gears of War. So, we've covered remakes and reimaginings and now we come to a phenomenon in popular entertainment that has only recently become an accepted practice, the reboot. What makes a reboot different from a remake or a reimagining? It's a question that nobody has asked, but I'll go ahead and give you my answer. In order for something to qualify as a reboot, there first has to have been an existing franchise. It's not enough for a story to be retold, but an entire set of stories that may have gotten stale or dated throughout the years. Those older sets of stories, then, take place in a different timeline or universe, separate from the new ones. The best examples of reboots are found within the superhero movie world. Take the Batman franchise, for example. The 1989 Tim Burton movie shouldn't be considered a reboot because there was no real franchise surrounding Batman at the time. Yeah, there was the Adam West Burt Ward TV series, but I wouldn't consider that a franchise. Four movies later, in 1997, Joel Schumacher directed the travesty known as Batman and Robin and effectively killed the Batman movie franchise, or at the very least, put it in a coma. It would take another eight years before Batman would be seen on screen again. Because the franchise restarted, and because it takes place in a different timeline, Batman Begins is considered a reboot. The same counts for The Amazing Spider-Man and Man of Steel. The 2009 Star Trek movie would be considered a reboot. Planet of the Apes is an example of a franchise whose first reboot, the 2001 Mark Wahlberg movie, failed and found success with a second reboot, Rise of the Planet of the Apes with James Franco. The James Bond franchise, though, is tough to categorize. There have been 23 official Bond movies, and they all have a certain continuity to them. If any of those movies would be considered a reboot, most would say that Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig Bond movie, would qualify. I would disagree with that assessment. The casting of Dame Judi Dench as M was a constant since Goldeneye, the first Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. If forced to choose, I would say that GoldenEye was more of a reboot than Casino Royale. But since I don't have to choose, I'll say that the Bond franchise hasn't had a reboot. It's just a series of movies with threads of continuity throughout. Now, why? Why reboot a franchise? More to the point, why reboot a franchise so soon after its last entry? Only five years had passed between the releases of Spider-Man 3 and The Amazing Spider-Man. Why the rush? Obviously, making money is the easy answer, and director Sam Raimi and star Tobey Maguire were getting tired of doing this character. But was there any pressure to deliver another Spider-Man movie so soon? Whatever the studio's reasons were, the Spider-Man franchise got a reboot. But the byproduct of a successful reboot is that you could potentially end up with a much better product than your last entry in the franchise. In the case of Batman, 
Warner Brothers changed a franchise that the movie-going public deemed silly and turned it into one featuring Academy Award-worthy talent. Where you go from writing like this... Louder, come on, sing, 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 come on! Yes, come on, louder! To writing like this... Ninjutsu employs explosive powders. As weapons? Or distractions. Theatricality and deception are powerful agents. You must become more than just a man in the mind of your opponent. Even if a bigger box office take is the primary source for the improvement, the art has been elevated to a higher degree of intelligence. And can that really be a terrible thing? When we come back, my review and commentary on my favorite new show on TV, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Hey, this is Adam Sharrock. And I'm Asid Sayed. Together we host The Gaming Marathon, a weekly podcast on the Realm Network and also on iTunes. If you want the scoop on all things gaming, then look no further than this podcast. Whether it's reviews, news, insight, or general wackiness in the gaming industry, we'll cover it all. We discuss all the big news from all major platforms, such as Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, and PC gaming, too. As well as reviewing all the latest and popular games, such as Splinter Cell Blacklist, Grand Theft Auto V, and Pikmin 3. And it's all available at RealmNetwork.com and on iTunes. The Gaming Marathon. Download and listen today. Oh, what do we have here? A 34-year-old Caucasian male who is dead. Very dead. Mm. Cause of death? Initial assessment, blunt force trauma. But what do I find when I probe a little farther? Bruising around the neck and ocean water in the lungs. Ooh, how long have you been dead, body? Four days. Gross, bloating, odors. Oh, uh, 24 hours. Perfect. Here we go. Stop, stop, stop. Weird, weird, weird. Rosa, what's your call? Weird or sexy? Weird. I knew it. But also kind of sexy? No, weird. But more importantly, that's what you were doing while Charles was grinding through paperwork? Told you. We're secondary in the unit. What do you guys want from me? You know, I take over a crime scene, I'm a bad secondary. I blow off work to have sex with a hot coroner, I'm a bad secondary. I can't win! If you're a fan of Andy Samberg, you'll enjoy Brooklyn Nine-Nine. If you're not a fan, you'll still enjoy it. Because it's not the Andy Samberg show. He's just one of a talented group in an ensemble cast. Now, I need to be clear about something right now. This review of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is not my recommendation to you to watch the show. I'm not saying that you should one way or another. I've had enough conversations with people and read enough reviews in my life to know that people are going to tune in to what they want to tune in and people like what they like regardless of what some dumb critic has to say. That's not to say I'm never going to recommend something or discourage something else. Go see Gravity. But what I'm doing right now is telling you why I, me, Omar, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine as much as I do. First of all, I'm a big fan of ensemble cast shows, Arrested Development, 30 Rock, and especially Modern Family. It allows audience members to get to bond with not just one character or actor. But what strikes me with Brooklyn Nine-Nine is how quickly the actors have found their individual characters' quirks. Sandberg as Jake Peralta could easily have gone off the deep end as a goofball detective, but he keeps it restrained to the point where his goofiness becomes amusing, even charming, without being stupid or annoying. 
Andre Brower plays the patient precinct captain, but with none of the stereotypical bravado found in such police comedies. Instead of frustrated rage, Brower's performance as a sort of no-nonsense parental figure plays off very well against the other cast members. The same goes for Terry Crews as the precinct sergeant, whose normally intimidating screen presence is used to juxtapose his fear of guns. But perhaps my favorite performance comes from Chelsea Peretti, whose performance as the loopy precinct administrative assistant is so loose and funny that I enjoy every time she's on screen. Now, remember, this is not a recommendation, it's just my commentary. That's it for this episode of Arts Review and Commentary. Be sure to catch the next Dark episode when I'll talk about the depiction of slavery in pop culture and my review of 12 Years a Slave. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcreviews. Follow the show on Twitter at arcreviews. And you can email me at artsreviewandcommentary at gmail.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.